How you doing? Good. Good. I think there was a mistake in the bulletin that maybe Chris Mayberry was speaking tonight and I was speaking next week or I'm speaking tonight and next week, but you only have to endure me for this one night. Um, I think Chris is speaking next week, right, Chris? Okay. God's grace. So when we think about religion, you talk to people about religion, there's some things that are fundamental that most people know about or think they know about and understand, and one of them I would say would be God's grace along with mercy and love. Those are things you uh, hear quite a bit when people talk about religion. But I would also say that God's grace is one of the most misunderstood things in the Bible. Um, just by talking to people in general, you see their views on it. And I myself was one of those at one time, misunderstood God's grace. I had, a, I had moved to Murfreesboro. Uh, I'd, I'd made a wreck of my life. I was living in a halfway house because I had just recently got sober from alcohol and drugs. And uh, I had went, I'd been there about a month and went to the church across the street there and Preacher talked to me, and he came over to me, and came over by the house where I was staying, and asked me to come have Bible study with him. So I went to him the first day, and he talked about my life, and asked me what was going on. I told him, well, I'm in a halfway house. I'm recovering from a life full of uh, alcohol and drug addiction and all kind of things. And he started talking about getting right with God, and I'm like, well, I, I've done too much. I don't deserve it. And he's like, well, you're right about one thing. You don't deserve it, and neither do any of the rest of us. We don't deserve God's grace. There's nothing we've done as human beings to put God in a position where he owes us something. Then I said, well, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. He goes, again, you're right. You're not good enough. Neither are any of the rest of us good enough to receive God's grace. It's not nothing about what I've done or what I can do to earn or put God in a position where he owes me forgiveness or salvation. So that's, that's my, used to be my thinking. You know, I had to earn salvation. I had to be good enough to go to heaven. I've also talked to people in, in Murfreesboro. I used to have a friend there, and every week we'd, we'd meet and get together, and he would go on with a big laundry list of things he'd done the past week, and usually it was things that not good. You know, I've cheated this person. I've done this. I drank this. I've done this. I... And at the end, he would always say, boy, I'm thankful for God's grace, as if God's grace is a license to do whatever I want to do, and I'm covered, you know. Um, and every week it was the same thing, so I'm like, well, this guy's He's not changing anything, but he's relying on God's grace. And I've talked to people. I've talked to another lady who uh, had told me about her son, how he was married and had kids, but he stayed drunk every night. He wouldn't work. He, uh, he didn't go to church, but he got saved when he was 17, so he's good. And I'm, as if salvation and receiving God's grace is a one-time act that you do, and then you go on living your life the way you want to, and God's grace will cover that. These are all misconceptions and understandings that different people have about grace. So I want, tonight I want to talk about God's grace and who receives it. And we, uh, first I want to talk about grace, what it is. You know, the Greek word is charis, and it comes to signify favor, goodwill, and loving kindness, especially as granted by a superior, like God, to an inferior, mankind. In the New Testament, grace takes on a special redemptive sense in which God makes available his favor on behalf of sinners who actually do not deserve it. So God's given us something we don't deserve. It's a favor, it's a gift, it's free. And there is tremendous emphasis in the New Testament upon the fact that human salvation is the result of heaven's grace and nothing else. John made that clear this morning in Bible study. We're saved by God's grace, period. If we are saved, it's because God wants us to be saved. And that doesn't alleviate us from having to meet his conditions or doesn't really uh, alleviate us from having any responsibilities. But I found this in the Christian Courier. This is by uh, Wayne Jackson. kind of describes what grace is. It's God bestowing his kindness, love, and favor to people who don't deserve it, which would be all of us. What we deserve as sinners 
his eternal damnation, condemnation. But he's made available because of his love for us, his favor. And the Bible makes it clear that if we are saved, it's by grace. And we know Ephesians uh, chapter 2 is a very popular verses that are read when we talk about grace. Say, you know, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, the gift of God. So there you see the words grace, salvation, gift, uh, God exceed, uh, extending his riches and his kindness toward us in Jesus. And in Romans 3, you know, we're familiar with this one too. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So God tells us if it's going, if we're going to be saved, it's because of, of his grace. It's something he's extending to us. It's a gift. It's not something that's earned or deserved, but something he's made available to us out of his loving kindness. The great news is God has offered his grace to everyone. Every human being that lives, as God has offered his grace, made available his grace, and offers it to everyone. The book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11, that tells us that, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The bad news is, or I should say the sad news, not everyone will receive God's grace. Jesus made this clear in a couple of teachings. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, he talks about separating the wheat from the tares, the wicked from the just, the sheep from the goats. So we can see here that not everybody is going to be saved. Therefore, that means not everybody receives God's saving grace because we're saved by that grace. So if some people are going to be lost, that means they didn't receive that grace. Why not? What's, that, what's the dividing line? What separates people who receive God's grace from those who don't? That's kind of what I, I want to talk about tonight. And... Uh, things I've been studying for the past, past couple of weeks. I got to thinking a lot about grace when John started talking about it. So the question is then, how does one receive God's saving grace? And I will, the crux of our lesson will be from uh, the reading that Blake just did in James chapter 4, 6 through 10. Starting with verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So I want to take these four or five verses here and draw some points from it that uh, kind of teaches who receives grace and what kind of attributes and characteristics people have that receive God's grace. Number one, chapter 4 of James, verse 6, says, God resists the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. So number one, you've got to be humble. If you remember the greatest sermon ever, ever preached by Jesus, his opening line was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The opposite, the opposite of humble is pride. Um, pride blinds us to our own faults. Uh, pride lets us see faults in others while ignoring ours and also blinds us to the fact that we need God. Jesus said, in his first line of that sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the beginning point. I think it's no coincidence that he mentions this first. A person has to realize they need God, that they're poor in spirit. They have nothing spiritually to offer God. God doesn't need anything from me. I'm basically destitute spiritually without God. When a person gets to that point and starts at that point, then they see the need for God and are willing to seek God. And he told a parable that I think strikingly 
shows us the difference between a proud person and the kind of person who's poor in spirit and humble. He said also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So looking at these two men, you see the first man, let's talk about him, the prideful man. Did he trust in God for his salvation? Jesus was speaking this parable to some guys who trusted in themselves. That means they were self-righteous. Their righteousness come from what they thought, what they did. He even uh, was so bold as to list his accomplishments to God. Hey, God, look what I do. I don't do it these guys. You know, I'm not like them. Look what I do, God. I, I fast. I give tithes. Like God needs a list for us to tell him what we do as if God should say, oh, thank you. You're right. You deserve salvation. Jesus said that's not the proper attitude to have. This man didn't see the need for God's grace because he relied on himself and his achievements to receive grace. Jesus said the man who had the proper attitude was a man who wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. He knew where he stood in relationship to God. Sort of like Peter when he realized when he was in the boat fishing and he had Jesus got in a boat with him. He'd been fishing all night, caught nothing. Took Jesus out. Jesus had cast your nets. He pulled all the fish up. And then Peter realized who Jesus was. He fell at his knees and said, depart from me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man. And you think about people who realize they're standing before God. They won't even raise their eyes to him, but they know they need God. This man looked to God for his salvation. Look what he says. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't list what he had done. He didn't list any attributes or any um, things that he achieved. He just knew where his, if he was going to be saved, he was going to receive mercy, it would be from God. Jesus said, this kind of man has the attitude. This is the kind of attitude you want to have to receive salvation, to receive God's grace. Number two, in your humility, when you become humble, you realize that you need God for salvation. The next thing a person would want to do is to submit to God. Again, James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Therefore, submit to God. God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The great thing about God is that he offers grace to all, but if one wants to receive it, they must submit to him, right? They must submit to his terms. Um, that term meek, a lot of people think it means weak or kind of quiet or timid, but it actually, if I understand it correct, the Greek word is talking about a, a term that describes a farm animal that's really strong and really powerful, but you're able to lead it and guide it. A horse is very strong and very powerful and very useful if you can guide it with reins. You know, you guide it and direct it. That's what God wants to do with us doesn't mean the horse is weak. The horse is still strong. He's just able to be used and directed. A horse wild out in the field you can't use is useless. But you submit that power to your control, then you can use that horse to do what you want to. This is kind of what it means to be meek. You're allowing God. You're submitting to God. You're placing yourself under God's authority, God's direction. And that takes a big person to do. That's not being weak. I see that as being strong, submitting yourself to God's direction. Actually, the word submit in the Greek is hupotasso. I think I'm saying that right. It means to arrange under or subordinate or to submit one's control, obey. So I'm submitting my control, my will to God's will. I'm going, I'm going to obey God and no longer just do what I want, 
This is the kind of person that receives grace. A humble person who in their humility knows they need God, looks to God for salvation, looks to God for grace, and is willing to submit to God. And this is where we run into trouble. People think that when we submit to God and obey his works, or his commands, I should say, that we're somehow earning our salvation. We're all familiar with this verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Which is true. Our salvation is not the result of my works. But again, keep reading. It says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As Christians, our salvation is not the result of our works. It's the result of God's grace, the gift he offered. But I still have a responsibility to walk in the works that God has given me. Obedience does not mean I'm earning anything. I can't earn grace. I, can't, I don't deserve it. But it does not alleviate me from having to submit to God's commands and God's will to receive it. Humility leads to obedience. Doing God's work is not earning anything. It's simply our duty. We've submitted to his will. We've put ourselves under his care and direction. We've given up our will to do his. And there's things that we're expected to do. James said in the same book, James, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word. There is things we're supposed to do. I'm not earning salvation by obeying God. I'm simply submitting to his will and his commands. I'm letting him direct my life. I'm not earning anything. James goes on to say in, in chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. My salvation is not the result of my works, but is I'm submitting to God and obeying him. My faith causes me to act. It causes me to obey God. I'm submitting my will to his. Again, not earning anything. I can't put God in a position where he owes me salvation. I'm simply submitting to his will. There's a difference in obedience and earning salvation, being obedient. Jesus put it this way, which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Jesus is saying here, when a servant comes in from doing what he's commanded to do, does the, does the master thank him? What? On judgment day, I'm not going to get to Jesus and he's going to say, oh, thank you for being so good. That's not going to happen. If I did every command, kept every command God had given me and did everything he commanded me to do, it's just my duty. It's what's expected of me. It's what's commanded of me. I have not put God in any kind of position to owe me anything. I'm simply doing my duty. Number three, resist the devil. James chapter four, verse seven. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This kind of goes back to uh, the people I used to talk to. The lady who said, you know, my son does all these things, but he was saved when he was 17, as if that's a license to sin. You know, grace is a license to sin. There's got to be a change. We've got to resist the devil. We make a choice. We're submitting to God and we're resisting the devil. We're resisting the devil, we're drawing near to God, or we're resisting God and drawing near to the devil. It's going to be either or. It can't be halfway. We all know the devil's trying to destroy us. 
He's trying to take us away from God, from following Christ. And he does this. We, we're all familiar with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He's seeking to devour us. He's actively seeking you, me, your children. He doesn't want us to receive God's grace. He's trying to tear us apart from God. How does he do this? Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. He's trying to draw us away from the simple devotion to Christ. He does this in a number of ways. Deception, uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He has several tools to draw us away from the simplicity, the simple devotion to Christ. He makes things look good. He makes us think things will feel good. He makes us think we will look good to others, the pride of life. All these things he puts before us, but we have made a choice. When we submit to God's will, we made a choice to resist the devil. Again, God's grace is not a license to sin or act how I want to. I've made a choice. Um, we're not to continue in sin as Christians. We've been freed from sin. Grace is not a license to sin. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, Paul wrote, or I'm sorry, the book of Jude says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Some guys have taken the grace of God and turned it into a license to sin or a license for immorality. But Paul in uh, Romans chapter 6, remember some people in Rome seems like they thought, well, grace is a good thing, so the more we sin, the more grace we get. So shouldn't we sin more to get more grace? And what was Paul's answer? Certainly not. How can we who have died to sin by making a choice to submit to God? We've crucified the old man in baptism. We've come up a new creature. How do we still continue in sin if we're a new person? For he who has died to sin has been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin so it no longer has dominion over us. Sin is not controlling our lives. We're not subject or sin is not our master. We've been set free. And being set free from sin, this leads to our salvation, right? We've been set free from sin, having become slaves of God. We've walked away. We've decided to become slaves of God, not slaves to sin. We've chosen a new way of life. We are to resist the devil and pursue God's will. Number four, when we resist the devil, like I said, the only alternative is we resist the devil, we draw near to God, or vice versa. So when we resist the devil, we draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The question is, how do we draw near to God? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do I draw near, through God, draw near to God? Well, there's only one way to draw near to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. It's through his blood, what he done for us, I'm able to approach God because of that sacrifice, I'm able to have my sins, the thing that separates me from God, that thing can be washed away by his blood and I can approach God and approach him boldly, it says. I can do that with a true heart, with full assurance and with full faith because of what Jesus did. Nothing I've done, but what Jesus did. Remember Jesus told us, I am the way, he is the only way. If I want to get to God, no one comes to God except through Jesus. There's no other avenue. I can't come up with my own way. The only way to God is through Jesus. That goes back to work sometimes, I think. You know, people say, well, uh, you guys put so much emphasis on works here or trying to earn your salvation. Well, no, Jesus set the way to get salvation. Can you imagine Noah 
you know, it says Noah found favor with God and God gave him the information that, no, there's a flood coming, it's going to destroy the whole earth, but I'm going to let you and your family be saved if you build this ark and give them the dimensions, the wood. Can you imagine if Noah said, I appreciate your grace, God, and I really want to rely on your grace, but I'm not going to build this ark because I don't want to earn your grace. I mean, that, <laughs> he would have drowned with the rest of the world, right? And God sets forth the conditions as Jesus did. Jesus said, I am the way, so he's the one that has all authority. If he says, this is how you draw near to God, that's the only way. I can't look at God and say, I appreciate your grace, God, but these things you've commanded, I'm not going to do because I don't want to earn your grace. Again, I'm not earning anything by being obedient to God. I'm simply doing my duty and accepting his gift on his conditions. So this, this idea that grace is a one-time thing that I received, and after that, you know, I'm done. I can live however I want, choose to do the things I want. You know, if it's sin, it's sin. You know, God's grace covers me. But Jesus said he's supposed to take up our cross daily and follow him. If I want to get to God, i got to follow the way. i got to follow Jesus. He sets the way. He is the way. If I want to get near to God through prayer, through reading his word, learning more about him, getting to know him better, know what pleases him, what displeases him, know how Jesus is like, what Jesus is like, how I can be like Jesus, that's how I draw near to God. I have a decision to make. Submit my will to myself and enjoy the pleasures of sin. Or I can resist the devil, his tactics, and draw near to God. Number five, to receive the humble person who submits to God, resists the devil. We're also to cleanse our hands. James 4, 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. You know, as, as we receive the initial forgiveness at baptism of our past sins, we saw our new Christian walk, you know, there's, we're expected to walk in the light. We're expected to be different. We're a new creature. We're expected to walk in the light of God's word. We're to live as God wants us to, submit to his will. But, again, we mess up. We're going to sin. Uh, that's, that's just a fact of life. We're imperfect creatures. But when we do, you know, we have a means to cleanse our sins, to continually cleanse our sins. We have God's given us ways to do that, to re keep receiving that grace. And one of these things is, you know, we've got we to take sin seriously. And when it arises in our lives, we've got to take care of it. We can't ignore it. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Cleansing ourselves of sin is a continual thing. It's not a one-time deal where uh, God saves me, and then from then on out, all my sins are forgiven, and I don't have to change anything about myself. I don't have to change my way of life. I'm, I'm at liberty to do as I want, and God's going to forgive me. We can't ignore sin in our lives. I think sometimes I do forget how serious sin is and what God thinks about sin. You know, I could, it's easy to get into the thinking of the world of thinking, well, is this a little white lie or I'll just do it this one time and God will, then I'll ask for forgiveness and God will forgive me. You know, we've got to take sin more serious than that. If we say we have fellowship with him, God, but we walk in darkness, well, we're liars and we don't practice the truth. We can't be children of God but continue to walk in darkness and do and not take sin seriously continue to live a willful sinful life there's got to be a change in our lives we got to cleanse our hands cleanse ourselves of sin we do this by confessing our sins to God um, also we're to examine ourselves test ourselves see how I'm doing how, how's my life doing how am I am I taking sin seriously am I letting it slide am I letting it go am I overlooking this am I winking at that you know we got to examine ourselves to see, in light of Scripture, how we're doing. 
Sin is something we should take very seriously. I know sometimes I'm guilty of, you know, not doing that. That's something I have to work on. Also, when we sin, you know, we just don't, hey, God, yeah, I sin, forgive me, please. There's got to be a change. I got to repent. Pray to God, forgive me. But that repentance, I have to change what I'm doing, take a different course, and not continue in sin, and just expect God to forgive me. Number six, those who are humble, submissive, who resist the devil, draw near to God, who, who cleanse their life of sin, also have to purify our hearts. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God's grace is conditional. And I, it's up to me to meet those conditions. And one of those conditions is I just can't go through the motions physically and act like a Christian. You know, it has to come from the heart. My motivation has to be pure. My motivation to be a Christian must be from the heart. Paul said in Romans, But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You know, it started here in my heart. Am I motivated by what God's done for me to make a change in my life? Do I realize in my humility where I stand before God? Am I willing to submit to his will? Am I willing to make changes in my life? Do I take sin seriously? Am I getting, this on, getting those things out of my life? What are my motivations? Why am I doing what am I doing? Is it from the heart or am I just going through the motions to impress other people or to appear as holy or as a righteous person? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So that don't leave room for much else, does it? I can't love God and love sin. As a matter of fact, in this same chapter in the book of James, chapter 4, if you go up a few more verses, James kind of scolds them. He says, you're trying to be friends with the world and with God. He says, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. You know, you can't be both. You can't have double, he, said, he calls them double-minded. I can't have, my heart can't be split. My mind can't be split. I'm either all in with God or I'm not. There's no gray area. I'm either resisting the devil, drawing near to God, or vice versa. There's no, I'm, well, I'm, I'm with God sometimes, I'm with the devil sometimes. You know, we've got to make a choice. And it's got to be motivated here. It's what I want to do. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You're going to either serve God or you're going to serve mammon. You know, the choice is ours, but it's got to be with our whole heart. And lastly, we've got to be mournful. James says in verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Many believe that God wants them to be happy, so they use that as a justification to sin. Well, God wants me to be happy, so this makes me happy, this sin. So he, he's got to be, be okay with it. Again, it's submitting to God's will, getting cleansing our life of sin, taking care of sin when it pops up. It's not a license to sin. God's grace is not a license to sin. God wants us to be happy, yes, but he's more worried about the next life than this one. This is a, this is a trial period for us. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. What's he talking about mourning? What are we mourning? Are we just, as Christians go around with our head down, you know, weeping and being sad all the time? Well, no, but there are things that we should mourn. One of them is sin, sin in my life. Do I mourn over my sin? Does it make me sad? Or do I take pleasure in it? Do I mourn the sins of the world. I know, I don't know about you guys, but when I watch the news or read the paper, there's a lot to mourn about. This country and this world is going down a path that you're like, is this ever going to turn around? Can it get any worse? And then the next day you read something, oh, it's gotten worse. You're, we're going to mourn the sins, our own and others, or of the world. But also we're rejoice. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But what, what is our rejoicing in? Romans 5, 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yeah, we mourn this world. We mourn things in this world because it's imperfect and there's lots of sadness. Uh, there's a lot of things to mourn. But rejoice in the hope that we have that someday we can get rid of this mortal coil, so to speak, and there's better things to come. 2 Corinthians, now rejoice, not, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Yeah, we're to mourn. This morning should be a godly morning. We should be sorrowful for our sins and what that does to our relationship with God. That's something to mourn, but it's also something to take care of. You know, God's, God's given us provisions to be forgiven. It's up to me to meet those provisions. And we've grown the fact that, you know, we're in this earthly tent, we're, we're having to suffer the sorrows and tribulations of life, but we've grown and we look forward to and we, we anticipate, you know, we, we can't wait for the day to come when we drop this body and, you know, we get to be with Jesus. So there are things to mourn, but there's a lot to rejoice in too when you're in Christ because we know the best, is, as John says about every week, the best is yet to come. That's it. So, who receives the grace of God? If I had to paraphrase it after reading James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, I would say, the one who, in humility, submits to the will of God and with a pure heart seeks to draw nearer to him, resisting the devil and sin, mourning the sin and trouble of this world, looking forward to the day when they are exalted by God. And it all comes back in chapter 10, I'm sorry, in verse 10 of James chapter 4. He ends that section by saying, again, humble yourselves, and in the proper day God will exalt you. So this is kind of a brief explanation of who receives God's grace. It's those who are humble, know they need it, know where to go to get it. They're looking forward and looking to God, looking to heaven. Those who are willing to submit to his will, who mourn their sins, who mourn their sinful nature. Those who want to resist the devil, draw near to God. That's the people who are going to receive God's grace. Those who want it and want it enough to do what God's asked to receive it. So tonight, if you're not a Christian, cold hard facts is you're not in Christ. Therefore, you're not in God's grace. You haven't received it. You're sitting there in your sins with no hope of, no reason to rejoice for the future. No hope of an afterlife of being with God. And what better time to take care of that than tonight? You know, God told Noah specifically how to build the ark to save himself and his family. And he's told us specifically what we need to do to be forgiven of our sins. Now, we're not earning anything. It would be the same thing if we said, yeah, God, I see here you want me to repent. You want me to be baptized. You know, you want me to confess your name, but if I did all that, I'd be earning your grace, and I don't want to do that. That would be the same thing as Noah saying, I know this boat's supposed to be built like this, but I don't want to earn your grace. Why not just submit to God's will? He's laid it out for us. Humble yourself. Know where salvation comes from. And, and do what you have to to get it. And if we can help you do that in any way, just come as we stand and sing.